Beth Undertown. Beth has made a fantastic first impression with her first novel, The Witchfinder's Sister, which um, I'm sure many of you in book groups will already have read. But she has come to Cornwall with this one. So you don't live in Cornwall, but my word, you have inhabited it. And what really fascinated me in this book was the setting, which revolves around a very, very Cornish thing, but a thing none of us know anymore, which is a gunpowder factory. Mm. And of course, people around here may know about gunpowder factories because of Trago Mills. There's a big Trago mm. Mills in That's the middle the of nowhere. One. And the mm. reason it's in the middle of nowhere is it was a gunpowder factory. But was Trago Mills your initial inspiration? No. 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 Um, I, yeah, I can tell you a bit about it. I suppose, first of all, I've got to apologize for not being Cornish. No, no, you're very all, welcome. You've set a book here. That's why you're um, here. But I was hoping that everyone would be nice to me because um, with The Witchfinder Sister, my first book, that was set in Essex. It's about some Essex witch trials. Um, and the people of Essex were so nice to me. And I feel sure that not to be outdone, you will all <laughs> also. Uh, be nice um yeah so so definitely i think setting is a useful thing to talk about first with this book um so yeah it's it's based around a couple of things um it's kind of a long story shall, shall i tell it to yeah, you yeah, tell me yeah i'll tell you okay time. okay yeah, okay okay so i suppose what you need to imagine is i've got my first book out this was kind of five six years ago um, and the first book is doing quite well, um, but my life is not going as well. I'm kind of, I'm getting divorced. Everything's feeling a bit turbulent. The book is doing very well though. And there's a photograph of Richard Maiderly pretty much sitting on my knee. Um, <laughs> so that side of things is going fine, but there's sort of a, a slight disconnection that can come with that sometimes and the pressure of the second one and like, what are you gonna do? Um, and so I was spending, because I'm incapable of writing a book that's set near me, uh, I was spending a lot of time and I, and I kind of get drawn to a place. Um, when I'm starting each book, I get drawn to a place and I, I actually don't know why that is. Um, but the place in this case was a little village called Ruin Lanehorn, um, yes. nearish Falmouth, you know, around there. So not very, definitely not Poldarky Cornwall. It's, it's kind of um, a little bit estuarial, quite creepy, all these sort of deep lanes. And I was staying uh, in a cottage there and kind of walking around uh, these lanes. Um, and I was visiting a couple of things. So one thing I visited was Lost Gardens of Heligan, which is obviously great. And those kind of abandoned and semi-abandoned walled gardens, like they were a big model for Paul Neath, which is the, the fictional kind the big of big house, house yeah. in this book. And then the other thing was this gunpowder factory. So do you know the writer Will Menure? Yes. Um, he's one of you. So he, he, him, <laughs> him, him and his wife, I think, basically maybe thought I was having a nervous breakdown. And while I was staying in this cottage, they were like, you should come for dinner. You should come for dinner one night. So I went over for dinner and he said, oh, have you, uh, have you seen the gunpowder factory at, at Ponsonooth? You know, the old gunpowder works. And I was like, no, no, what's, what's that? And he was like, drive, drive by, you know, but on your way home, drive by and have a look. And, and if you've not been, it's kind of, it's basically a nature reserve now. And it's got all these kind of ruined mill buildings, but with these beautiful, it's kind of like more beautiful than any water feature you could design for your garden because the water is still coming down the valley in these very kind of complex little runnels um, and that was intended to damp the air and all of that system is still there. So you can kind of effectively go and see this amazing sort of water sculpture um, in this woodland. 
Uh, and I thought that was amazing. So I owe Will a really big debt. And that was kind of the start of the interest. But gunpowder um, is such a good element for a thriller because yeah. you keep thinking any minute it's know, all going to go up. I so. know. And the, like, what, one thing that I loved that, that really made that place stick as well is that um, so the, I assumed that the trees were later, were like a later mm. addition. Um, but the trees were always there. It was always kind of this factory in amongst the trees. And um, I think the thinking was that it would, it would damp a blast. Like if it did right. go up, yeah. it would kind of prevent it from sort of destroying as much, as much stuff. So it must have always been this incredibly atmospheric place. We're all going to go, um, go there. I, I think we should all go there. And it's free. Like, have the stage. Oh, well. Read to us from the key in the lock. And if you need a glass of water, I forgot to point out oh, to yeah. your previous readers. <laughs> well, there is water there if you get thirsty. Yeah, could, as, a, as a weird flex, I could just go and drink the whole <laughs> jug and then like come back. Um, no. Um, okay, so I'm going to read you the prologue, and then I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about the book. I'll try to. Um, I still dream every night of Paul Neath on fire, smoke unravelling from an upper window, and the terrace bathed in a hectic orange light. And every morning I wake, convinced that Tim is under, under my bed. Thirty years have elapsed since the business at Paul Neath. I have married Richard, given birth to Tim, mothered him and watched him grow. But I see now that the decision I made at Polneath was the only decision of my life. Everything marred in that one dark minute. I've got as far as I can now with writing it down, but the dream will not shift. And the feeling of Tim beneath the bed every morning grows, if anything, more distinct. I suspect it's because the Polneath business is not finished still, not yet. I cannot say where it will end, but I know perfectly well where it began with the stopped mills among the damp trees, the silent house and the death of a child, somebody else's son, the kitchen clock in my father's house ticking on past midnight, tea on the table, well stewed, and the coals in the grate subsiding comfortably, and a woman, a girl really, 19 years of age, with her three good frocks and her habit of biting her index finger. Myself, as the flames licked upwards a mile away, looking at the clock and waiting. So that's the prologue. And now comes the really terrible part where I try to tell you a little bit more about the book. So one thing I would really recommend not doing if you ever write a book is to make the subject of the book be impossible to discuss without spoilers. <laughs> Don't do that. Just, just, just. No, it, it, so, so there are some things that I can't talk about with this book, which would be because it's spoilers. Um, but there are things I can tell you. I can certainly tell you about sort of um, beyond the setting, kind of what I was trying to do with this book and sort of where it came from. So I would say I, I, I'm kind of half watching the writers at the back to see if this time's true, because I, I don't want to make state, sort of sweeping statements about all writers. But I would say that writers, <laughs> We get a little bee in our bonnet and we kind of try and do a little different thing each time. And it's kind of like you're trying to sort of prove that you can, you know, like do this different thing. But at the same time, if, if you're a writer in the world, if you're publishing, it needs to be kind of similar enough to what you've done before so that people aren't like, what is this? You know, like when someone does a crazy electronic album and you're like, I don't know what that is. Um, so you don't, know, you, don't, you don't want to do that, but, but you do want to kind of give yourself a new challenge. And for me, there were a couple of new challenges, really. Um, the main one, I suppose, is that my first book um, it was based very 
I don't want to say faithfully, but like fairly heavily around a real piece of history. And because of that, it had its own plot. If anything, it had a plot that I had to stick to. You know, like I can't give someone a different death than they really had, for instance. Um, so, I, and I think that in, in classic sort of writer fashion, rather than say, oh, I stuck really well to that real history. I did a really good job there. What my brain said was, but you can't write a plot, can you? Like, you don't know how. So with this one, I really wanted to kind of invent a plot and particularly a mystery plot um, because disappointingly, I teach at a university and one of the like, kind of courses that I teach is like mystery fiction um, and basically kind of thriller narratives and that sort of thing. Um, and a really well-constructed thriller is, I just think, a really joyous thing and I love it. Um, so I wanted to write a really kind of solid mystery that I, I felt good about. Um, so that was one place that this book came from. Um, and the mystery um, in this book. So we meet the main character, Ivy. I used to get in big trouble and say that we meet her as an older lady. I then did my maths again and was like, she's 50. Probably <laughs> better not carry on saying that. My mum was in the back like, no. Um, so we meet Ivy in midlife um, and that's 1918 and she's just lost her son in the Great War. And as you might imagine, this is bringing up a lot of feelings and memories and the specific memories it's bringing up are of a particular thing that happened in her village 30 years ago which was that a little boy died at the big house which was Paul Neath. Um, so the mystery surrounds the boy's death and kind of unravels from there um, and I suppose other things that I was kind of very engaged with with this uh, which I won't go on about but, but um, to kind of give you a flavour of whether it would be a cup of tea or not um, I was really interested in um, the Victorian era and the Great War and sort of at what point people became modern or become modern. And I really liked the idea of a character um, who, for whom the Great War doesn't mean, in a direct sense, a huge amount of societal change. Because um, I feel as though I re read a lot of fiction or see a lot of film where the Great War is like, and now we all dance the jive and kind of become modern and become modern in outlook or different in some way. Um, and I really wanted to write a character for whom that kind of wasn't the case and, and life itself in a, in a kind of way had carried on in this very sort of timeless um, way that it always had. Um, so anyway, so I'll read you the first chapter, um, which is where we meet Ivy in 1918. Our son Tim was killed in February, 10 months ago now. This is the first Christmas, and in that sense alone was always bound to be difficult. Today is the 23rd, and only this afternoon did I make the customary garlands for the dining room fireplace. Jake brought in the greenery and deposited it on the floor of the study with a nervous glance at me. I suppose he's still wary after the trouble I've caused these last weeks. At any rate, he brought in his armful of ivy and mistletoe and willow, as, I asked, as, as I'd asked him to, without a word, as though he were any other servant. Making the belated decorations, I found a spider's egg sac frozen among the foliage, which turned to a kind of dust as I touched it, making me shudder, leaving me sad at its ruined hopes. I finished the garlands quickly and had Mrs Fawcett pin them up, though of course I eat alone these days, breakfast, luncheon, dinner, the chair opposite quite empty. Nobody to enjoy the garlands but me. I do not think the Fossets care much about garlands, but still I'm glad I made them, if only so that something, anything, might be as usual. Now my painful hands are leaving green marks on the page. 
It's dreadful, of course, not to have Tim here, though in fact this will be the third year I've missed seeing his face on Christmas Day. 1915, that was the last time. Tim's training was finished, and in the January he'd be going over. He always liked marzipan on Christmas cake, smooth and thick as a counterpane, but I hadn't been able to get the sugar for it. The afternoon he came home, I was still fussing with the cake, how to make it look less bare, while Jake went to the station to collect him. After his previous visit home, I was resolved this time to keep an irreproachable grip upon my emotions. I tried to tell myself I was reconciled to Tim's going. I'd held out against his joining up. Then they'd come in the summer to make lists of all the men. Only that, only lists, but it suddenly seemed inevitable. Tim had, Tim had turned 19 in any case and volunteered. Then, a week before his visit, the list makers had come again to the house. I'd told them the truth, that Fawcett was over the age, Jake not quite, but that one of his legs was two inches shorter than the other and he cannot run without pain. I answered the men's questions, Fawcett hovering nervously at my back, and told them that they already had our boy, our only boy. When Tim arrived, he was in uniform, a dreadful stiff thing, he looked older. He kissed me tenderly and gave me one or two wry looks while Mrs Fawcett brought tea and Richard began to deliver what he considered to be the men's news. Smuggling convictions in the district, a mare sold as pregnant who turned out only to have a tumour inside her the size of a grapefruit, disputed fence boundaries. He was thinking of reviewing the rents for the top fields. The drainage needed repair by the bottom road. I sat peeling the bits of, picking the bits of peel out of my cake and tried to admire Richard's assiduousness, his attention to detail, his ability to be ordinary, even in the face of this. But the dull green brown of Tim's uniform insisted upon itself, and I looked at Richard, I looked at my own husband, and I thought, he doesn't care. Our son is going to that, and he doesn't care. So I took myself off. As soon as Mrs. Fawcett put her head in for the plates, I went outside to the freezing but sunny bench and tilted my face upward and felt the light on my closed eyelids and listened to the voices of the men through the dining room window. There are winter days in our part of Cornwall which make a pale, cruel imitation of summer. After a quarter of an hour, Tim came out and sat himself down and asked how things were faring at my end. Then, more softly, how have you been, mother? A little touch on the back of my hand. Really, I mean. Oh, well enough, I said, and then I've missed you. He moved his arm, kindly, dismissively. It's no different than, than when I went up to Oxford, surely. I looked at him, of course it was different, and he dipped his head in acceptance. In any case, I said, Oxford, you know, I can imagine that. He accepted this too, but I instantly regretted having said it, because suddenly it was clear to me, utterly clear, as it can be only to a mother, that despite his loud, brave voice and his bright new buttons, he was frightened. Besides, I determined not to argue with him anymore. I wanted instead to say something to him, something that would make him just get through it, would prevent him from being brave. But I did not know what that thing would be. In silence, we watched a blackbird prospecting the lawn, and then he said something about the training not having been so bad. Then I asked, but you don't know where you'll be stationed? They don't tell us. I rather like it. He was moving his feet around, scuffing his boots, and I almost said a sharp word to him, but of course he was still getting used to them. Perhaps they were painful. I held back from asking about blisters, but I did press his hand where it rested on the bench. 
ridiculous in its solidity, it seems now, so very warm. You mustn't worry, Tim said, and when I didn't answer, shaded his eyes and turned to me. I'll write. I looked away into the garden and Tim looked too. I said, did I tell you? Theo Stainforth's mother says he's getting married. Tim shifted on the bench. Do pass on my congratulations, he said lightly. Good old Theo. Good night.